Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome, and thank you all for joining us. And my special thanks are due to Mark Salter, Eric Solheim, and our board member, Richard Armitage. And my special thanks are also due to Ambassador Devinda Subasinga, who is the silent mischief creator of this event. My name is Bharat Gopalaswamy, and I'm the director of the center here. At the South Asia Center, we, look at, we want to look at South Asia more broadly rather than country by country and, the, and also address some of the common themes occurring in the region and across the borders. One thing that we see in the region um, is that the st stability is elusive. Whether we look at war-torn Afghanistan trying to strengthen its economy or Pakistan fighting with militancy and energy shortages or Bangladesh where, um, Bangladesh where issues there are issues challenging democratic consolidation. Um, we want to address that as part of our center. Across South Asia, we see external actors have, have often played a role in building stability in the region and also mediating both conflicts directly and indirectly. Earlier this week, we saw an effort to bring Afghan and Taliban leadership to the negotiating table restarted this week with Pakistan, China, and the United States participating in the negotiations. And so today, we are looking at the Sri Lanka experience and if, and, if, and if there are lessons that we could learn from the foreign intervention in Sri Lanka's civil war and how these lessons can be broadly applied to the region as well as efforts internationally. As we all know, Sri Lanka was engulfed in a violent civil war from the 80s to 2009 between the governments and the Tamil Tigers. In early 2002, following a ceasefire agreement and an invitation from both sides of the conflict, Norway led um, a series of peace talks attempting to resolve the conflict. Norway entered the scene after India's failed effort to resolve the conflict. Um, Norway was seen as, um, as somebody who could usher peace between both parties. But despite efforts and resources, international involvement in, in South Asia conflicts has often suffered its own share of challenges from, local, 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 from lack of local support and issues coupled with concerns over sovereignty. Today we have an expert panel to discuss and address some of all those issues. And all of them have an intimate knowledge of the subject in, in their own ways. So first I'm going to invite Mark Salter, um, who, is, who is one of the co-authors of the book. And we'll hear from him. All comments are on the record. Mark will speak for approximately five to seven minutes. That will be followed by, by the way, none of our panelists need any introduction. and and all, all their bios are there, and I'm not going to read their bios out. So this will be the run of show. Mark Salter will give us opening remarks for five to seven minutes. That will be followed by Eric Solheim, and finally Richard Armitage um, for another five or seven minutes, and then we'll open the floor for discussion. Mark, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thanks to the Atlantic Council for, for hosting this event. Um, I should begin by saying it's not often that I find myself wanting to claim sole authorship, but I'm going to do here. Despite Barris' content, it's actually me who wrote the book that you've heard about. That said, um, Eric and his colleague from Norwegian Foreign Ministry, uh, Vidal Helgesen, are people without whom this book would not have happened in many senses. So I suppose in that sense, it can be called a cooperative effort. Okay, I am, as this event is something in the character of not a book launch, but it is on the backs of my book having just come out. I thought I'd just begin by reading a brief passage from the book, which comes from the introduction. Um, and it describes a visit I made to the northeast of the country of Sri Lanka 
in January 19, uh, 19, January 2013, um, when uh, Rajapaksa was still in power, but things were beginning to perhaps open up. So it describes one bit of that journey. Our next stop was Prabhakaran's underground bunker complex at Vishramadu, a truly eerie experience. Under the watchful eye of a Sinhalese soldier, we surveyed the somewhat motley collection of assembled LTT memorabilia, all of it meticulously labelled to emphasise, quote, the evils of the LTTE. Here a terrorist gadget, there, to quote, an example of the luxury lifestyle of the LTT leader's family, and so on. Although whether Prabhakaran's insulin cooler on display in one of the bedrooms fit that categorization is perhaps debatable. We descended to the dimly lit lower floors, their sturdy hatch doors encased in reinforced concrete, and peered into the semi-darkness semi with bats swooping round us. I found myself thinking about another dictator's bunker that I had visited 25 years earlier when researching another book, Hitler's Wolfschanzer, Wolf's Lair, buried deep in the, deep in the forest of Ostpoisen, now northeast Poland. To prevent the complex falling into the hands of the advancing Red Army, in January 1945, the Nazis blew up this extraordinary piece of defensive architecture, a complex they had constructed themselves less than four years previously. When I visited its ruins in 1989, at the heart of the Wolfschanze, I found huge slabs of concrete scattered at all angles amidst the forest greenery, the entrails disgorging huge iron tendrils that flailed upwards towards the enveloping canopy. The Nazis needed over a ton of explosives to finish the demolition job, but finish it they did. Vishwamadu, by contrast, is a well-established site, complete with nearby cafe, Cafe 68, named after the army division based there. Why on, why on earth would anybody want to put a stop to the tourist trade there? But somebody clearly did. Later in 2013, reports emerged that the army had decided it was high time to blow up the LTT leader's bunker. Interviewed by a BBC reporter, a military spokesman suggested that visits to Vishwamadu had only ever been a temporary phenomenon. And now that the area had been demined, there was really no reason to, quote, keep the ghosts of terrorism alive. Okay, well, there's a little flavor for you. Um, just a couple of remarks, really, because I think the questions will be where we get to mainly discuss. I want to say a couple of things in terms of what we learnt, what I learnt and what I tried to highlight in the book by way of lessons learned from the conflict. The first pertains to this country, the United States of America. I think that enormous credit is due to this country in general and to Richard Armitage in particular for taking the stand um, adopting the policies and pursuing the path that they did pursue with respect to Sri Lanka. Don't forget, the ceasefire agreement in Sri Lanka came less than six months after 9-11. Hardly, shall we say, propitious conditions for suggesting that now was the time to start peace negotiations with terrorists. Nonetheless, that is what Richard Armitage and his team did. Uh, he himself participated on the sidelines at a donor conference that occurred in the context of the third round of talks in Oslo in November 2002, and in my judgment, consistently uh, supported and encouraged the Norwegians in what they were doing, and no less importantly, back here, um, uh, in the corridors of power, argued consistently 
for a policy of constructive engagement uh, in Sri Lanka. Now, of course, it's a policy that ultimately, well, fill, finish the sentence as you will. Um, but I think it shows a very important thing, that for all the rhetoric of the war on terror, for all the suggestion that we'll never talk to terrorists, the reality on the ground for those who understood this particular context was that was precisely what was required as one of the components of attempting to find a peaceful settlement. So I think there's tremendous credit there to be uh, um, drawn there, and I don't know whether that experience is sufficiently understood and highlighted in the US context. If it isn't, I believe strongly that it should be. The second thing I would say, and do stop me when I should stop, please, um, taking things more directly back to Sri Lanka, is about the question of bipartisanship. And there's two bits to this. One is that Norway's ability to sustain a long-term engagement in Sri Lanka absolutely depended on one thing, which was, domestically speaking, bipartisan political support for the peace engagement. So that, for example, when Vidar Helgeson's conservative government came to power in 2002, one of the first things they did was to keep Eric, Eric Sulheim, on board from the other side of the political fence as a key figure in the negotiation team. I would argue that that bipartisan political support, which had its difficulties and its challenges, was essential to the conduct of, peace, of Norwegian peace policy in Sri Lanka. And I would suggest to you that it's something that may be pretty essential in other places around the world where countries attempt to facilitate or mediate um, settlements to conflict. The other side of the bipartisan story, if you like, is actually very Sri Lankan which is that, in my judgment, it was the failure to secure bipartisan political support from the Sinhalese, within the Sinhala polity, from amongst the Sinhalese political parties, in particular the SLFP, the Sri Lanka Freedom Party, and the UNP, the United National Party. It was the failure to get both parties behind the ceasefire agreement and the subsequent peace talks that ultimately led to the peace processes unravelling. Now, I'm not saying with that that I think Norway could or should have f attempted to enforce bipartisan support. I don't think that it could have done that, and I'm not sure that it should have done. But what I think is unquestionable is that absent that support, there was always the danger that old-style Sri Lankan politics would assert themselves, meaning that if you say yes, I say no. If you say black, I say white. If you say peace process, I say sell out. If you say sell out, I say peace process, et cetera, et cetera. That's exactly what happened. Um, and I think that in retrospect, we can see that that was something that had to be dealt with at the beginning. The very least, I would say to the Norwegians, they perhaps, in their analysis and understanding of the situation, perhaps didn't sufficiently appreciate how important that would be to a peace process. I think that's enough. Thank you very much. Sure. Thanks. And that was right on, right on time. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Th th thank you so much. And let, let me try. I mean, this is a book for two main audiences. Number one, all those with an interest in Sri Lanka and South Asia. And the other, all those with a general interest in how, how to try to make peace, what are, what are the general potential lessons learned for Syria or Yemen or South Sudan or whatever other, other conflict. Uh, let, my let me focus in on four lessons learned from our side. Number one, which I got in the hard way from the very beginning. We were called to Delhi 
uh, we were called into a meeting with Lalit Mansing, who some of you may know, he was later the Indian ambassador to the United States of America, and he was a brilliant foreign secretary at the time. He brought us in, and it was two hours first-rate interrogation with the one issue, how could these pink Christian people from Northern Europe with hardly any understanding of South Asia, how could they, they potentially contribute in that difficult place? Then we were kicked out, uh, and we were brought into Jasun Singh, the then foreign minister, and Jasun said, I have just one question for you. And then I understood you have somewhat passed the test of Lalit Mansing, but leave that aside. I have just one question for you. He said, are you patient? And I said, no, 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 no. We are not patient. How can we be patient? I mean, children are dying in Sri Lanka every day. Women are weeping. It's a horrible war. How can we be patient? We want to stop that war. And then uh, Jasun Singh said, well, if that's your perspective, uh, that's the way to the uh, Delhi airport. Please go straight there and make certain that you buy a one-way ticket back to Europe and never come back to this uh, part of the world. Because if that's your perspective, you will only mess it up. If only if you can be patient, take a long historical view, accept that there will be ups and downs, only then you can potentially have some impact. Even then, it's not certain, but at least then you can potentially do some good. And of course, Jasvant was right. I was completely wrong. Now we are 15 or 16 years after that conversation. Still, the main issues in Sri Lanka are not resolved. However, I think we are at the most hopeful time in modern Sri Lankan history. There's never been a better chance of getting it right than it is exactly now. So that's number one, be patient. Second, we should have done more to uh, uh, get a broader, stronger coalition of outside players to support the peace process. Richard played an absolutely essential role in bringing in uh, US support at a time when that was very difficult. Uh, we had support from India throughout. Uh, we created a co-chair mechanism with Japan, the European Union, but we should have done more to bring major players behind this peace process, and we should have done more diplomatic to really try to bring in the heavyweights, because there were so many other issues at the time. I mean, Sri Lankans tend to believe that everyone in the universe are focused on Sri Lanka, uh, but because it did not really reach uh, the, uh, the, the, the President Bush's or the, 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 the Prime Minister Vajpayee of India or all the top, top leaders of the world, they have so much uh, else to to uh, consider. So we should have done more uh, on that. And from the day one, we took an India-first approach. India is by far the overwhelming influence in Sri Lanka. I always tell my Sri Lankan friends when they speak about, yes, United States or China or Europe, look at the map. Uh, you have one big neighbor. All the languages, all the food, all the culture, all the religion, everything come from India or is integrated with India. In peaceful times, you can take your wife or your girlfriend uh, by boat uh, from Jaffna to, to, to Tamil Nadu, and you can watch that cinema, and you can come back uh, during the same night. Your destiny is with India. Understand that, and based on that, and on that basis, please be friendly with the United States, with China, uh, with everyone else. Third lesson uh, Mark has uh, looked into, the key reason why the problem in Sri Lanka developed was the lack of ability of the two main political forces in the land, Sri Lankan Freedom Party and the United National Party, to work together. They had been uh, fighting each other since the 1950s. Some period the president and the prime minister was from, from the two different sides. And you always got the feeling that they hated each other more than they hated Prabhakaran and, and, and the Tigers, because the enemy is closer to you. 
and we are uh, afraid of uh, losing out to the other side. And whenever Chandigarh-Komratunga or Anne Wickermansinger or any other leader took some really brave step towards peace, they either were stabbed in the back by the other side or at least they feared to be stabbed in the back by the other side. No, we could not really resolve that issue, but of course, unless the Singala political elite came forward with some kind of joint offer to the Tamils or some joint resolution with the Tamils, be very, very hard to resolve anything. <coughs> we should potentially have done more. Uh, this was not our mandate. We tried to ask the Indians to interfere and put more pressure, bend more arms to, for them to work together. But at the end, that was one of the main problems throughout the peace process. And uh, there is some positive situation now, but that Unless, that is, unless the two main political forces can work together, it will be very, very hard to find a settlement. And the fourth main issue is the relationship to the Tamil Tigers. Because that's a key factor in the book. We were speaking to the Tigers much more than anyone else. For sure, I am by far the non-Tamil in the world. I've met Mr. Prabhakran most often, speaking to him, uh, relating to him. That was also why we were somewhat cri sometimes criticized to be too close to the Tigers, but because we were given the opportunity to speak to them. Uh, I'm a strong proponent of the idea that you need to engage. We need to speak to all groups, even brutal, even extremist, even group, uh, brutal warlords like Prabhakran. We need to speak to dictators. That is not the same as giving in to them cannot accept all the demands, but you need to engage. The problem in Sri Lanka was that it was not that it was too much engagement with Prabhakram, there was too little engagement with Prabhakram. The government of Sri Lanka made it, a, uh, made it a reward for good behavior. Whenever Prabhakram behaved somewhat well, people were allowed to go and see him. Should have done exactly the opposite, asked international dignitaries to go and meet him, more people should have met him. Look into the fact that Mr. Prabhakram, as far as I am aware of, never met a Sinhalese. Uh, I am aware of one meeting with a Muslim delegation headed by Ralph Hakim, a Sri Lankan Muslim politician. Except for that, he met only Tamils. And as I am aware of, except for Mr. Balasengam, the chief political negotiator, no one, no Tamil would give him unwanted advice. They will all come to what they consider the big leader, the political genius, the man who created this, I mean, with his own hands, with, viol with violence, created this movement. They will come to him with the view, how can I please you know so that I can get some benefit from that? Uh, and and what, what, what is the advice you want, you want to hear? Only, in, only foreigners could give him some reality check. Uh, and he made enormous blunders. Uh, he re resorted to heavy violence. He came to believe that violence was the real answer to most issues. Uh, if you don't like someone, bump them off. I mean, true, the Sri Lankan government also killed a good number of people, uh, but only foreigners could have basically given him the reality check. For the last three years of his life, after the death of Mr. Balasingam, when the LTT was pushed and pushed and pushed in military terms by the military forces of the government of Sri Lanka, was not one meaningful political or military initiative from the LTT. Because of the isolation of this person, uh, all the other members of the movement were younger than him, uh, recruited to the movement by him, basically, got their military experience through him. He was for long a brilliant military leader, for sure, 
but with very, very limited political experience. He had not related to the South, didn't understand it, and for sure did not understand the thinking of Washington uh, or Delhi or anything else, and that we should have engaged a lot more, not a lot uh, less. I mean, how, well, I, I can com continue to expand upon, uh, upon this, but I think that's a very, very important lesson uh, for uh, other peace process. I mean, and in, in after 2001, of course, the American doctrine was that you should not speak to terrorists. Very good, you <laughs> still did it, uh, but that, that was wrong. You need to talk, you do not need to give in, but you, you need to talk. We, can, we, will, we are not able to resolve most of the conflicts in the world through military means. We need, for sure, military means as well, but we need to try to talk and find, find settlements, and then you need to speak even to figures you uh, do not like. So uh, engagement is the fourth lesson for me, and we should do more of it. Thank you. And with that segue, Rich? Oh, thank you. Uh, there's a problem with going third. Uh, everything that can be said has been said, except not by me. But I'll, <laughs> I'll try not to uh, re be repetitive. I want to thank Mark for this tremendous effort with the book. This is fantastic. Uh, and I have read the whole book. And it's soul-searching in a way. Uh, particularly in the lessons learned where people like Eric and Vidar and, and others spoke from their hearts and there's a wealth of material there which we can arm ourselves for other peace missions in other parts of the world. And I am one of those who yield to no one in my admiration for the Kingdom of Norway's efforts on peace, whether it's in Guatemala or Sudan or uh, the Palestinian question or, and uh, most recently Sri Lanka. And the opportunity to work with uh, people like Minister Sondheim and our absent uh, colleague, Vidar Helgerson, is one that I truly treasure. You know, I don't have an opportunity very often to speak about this anymore. I've seen people have moved on. But there are those who would say the Norway mission failed in Sri Lanka. I'm not one. Perhaps you could say the international community failed. But I think you can certainly say that Sri Lanka failed. And there's a, a lesson there for all of us, that you can't want peace more than the parties, the participants want peace. If you do, you're going to head for real trouble. And second, when you put yourself in someone's civil war, even with the most benign, uh, best intentions possible, sooner or later, you will be seen as on someone's side in that civil war. And I was an assistant secretary of defense in, at the time of Lebanon when our views uh, of trying to bring a resolution to that question put us in the middle of someone else's civil war. And over time, it resulted in the death of 243 Marines and one naval personnel. It, it's not very well understood, I think, why the United States was involved in this, why we wanted to join with our Norwegian colleagues. We had other issues on our plate. And we were thinking of even other issues in 2003, particularly one called Iraq. Uh, some people would credit me because of personal interest and personal experience, both with Sri Lanka and in Pakistan during the 80s. Uh, but that's not it. That was part of it. It made me alert to reading cables from our embassy in, in Colombo. Uh, I was interested in it. Uh, but it was much more complicated than that. It had its, some of its origins in, uh, in a 1987 meeting right here in Washington between Casper Weinberger and an assistant secretary of defense and Rajiv Gandhi, in which we spent the better part of an afternoon trying to argue with him, please stay out, 
don't interfere in Sri Lanka. Uh, we know something about this. We, we knew from intelligence and from cables that, that the Indians were planning to do this. We said, finally, the last argument we deployed is, it's easy to get in, but it's hard to get out. How are you going to get out? Well, they got in and with disastrous consequences, as we know, and it left them a very difficult, um, at least from my point of view, very difficult to deal with on the question of Sri Lanka. They were so burnt, if I can use that term. And of course, ultimately, it resulted in the murder in 1991 of Rajiv Gandhi, from a female suicide bomber. So there's some regrets in the United States, and I think that propelled us. We had a feeling of regret for this, not being able to persuade uh, Mr. Gandhi of this, but it was much deeper than that. It's well known that the Bush administration cared deeply about several things, Iraq, Afghanistan, we had to do, uh, uh, Iran, North Korea, and the general war on terror. But President Bush, after discussions with Secretary Powell and with me, came to the conclusion that this might be a good opportunity. After all, this was the place that gave us child soldiers. This is the place that gave us suicide bombers. This is the conflict that gave us women suicide bombers. And if there's a way to resolve this and support the Norwegian mission in this, then we wanted to be part of it. The president gave it an okay. Now, we didn't speak to the Tigers. We had no moral equivalency. There was no question in the United States, in our mind, who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. The good guys were the citizens of Sri Lanka, and the bad guys were the Tigers. Though we did, by not asking permission, uh, did go to the Oslo conference and speak in front of Mr. Balasingham uh, quite directly, and I'm sure not to, uh, finding any favor uh, with him with the comments about the need to give up terrorism, renounce terrorism. But we were trying to show that we're not a monolithic, uh, we didn't have a monolithic approach to terrorism. So uh, we, we could, if people would renounce terror, we could get back to on an even keel. So the president gave the okay. And that's why we were able to be involved for several years. And there were some notable successes brought about by Norway in those years. The Tokyo Donors Conference was, as I recall, about $4.5 billion in 2003. There were some other issues going on in 2003. But to be able to put that together with Norway and the EU and the US and Japan is a pretty monumental occasion. And I think it's worthy of some study. Now, this brings me to three points, uh, and then we'll turn to questions. One, you know, personalities really do matter. And the very interesting book will show how the, the personality, oh, there's one other issue, if I may. George Bush had faith in Ronald Wick Ramasinga. He believed that, uh, that uh, Prime Minister uh, Wick Ramasinga wanted to have peace, and he wanted to have peace because he wanted to be able to turn his attention to the economy to get rid of the bloated public sector to make Sri Lanka a real functioning modern economy. And in order to do that, he had to have peace. So his election very much helped us and spurred us on in this direction of support for Sri Lanka. Um, personalities matter, as I say, whether the president and the prime minister couldn't get along and in a very large measure. that. Well, if it didn't derail it, it certainly slowed the trains for a long time. Uh, and there are other personality conflicts that are spoken about in the book. Vidar uh, and, and Eric sometimes, as would happen, would have some difference of opinion. And in some of it personality, though I'm sure you're quite good friends now. It always struck me as you were. The previous Norwegian ambassador in Colombo, 
and Eric. Who's on top? Who's in charge? Who's who's envoy? Who represents the kingdom of Norway first? And who represents it second? All these things. Well, why do I dare say something like this? Because I'm a graduate of the Casper Weinberger, George Schultz personality conflict. And I'm a graduate of the Colin Powell, Donald Rumsfeld personality <laughs> conflict. Personalities matter. We always talk about national interests and this trumps all. Well, sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. Second thing, uh, the big lesson for me in this is that there are times when you need to hold your cards and there are times when you need to fold your cards. You can always deal again. You can deal another hand. And there's something I think very um, proper and actually healthy sometimes saying, stop, we're leaving. Call us when you're interested in getting back on track again. This is another of the lessons I learned out of this, this, this particular, uh, both out of the book and out of the experience. And finally, something that I think all of us need to keep in mind if you're in the public, as a politician or as a minister of environment or anything else, as a, as a bureaucrat in government, we sometimes write, speak, uh, put out statements, etc., without fully thinking through each of the audiences that we're going to reach. And what sounds great to the Sinhala audience may not sound as good to the Tamil community, or for that matter, the Buddhist community, which none of us thought about very much, other than to engage Japan in this because of their relationship with Buddhism. So one of the lessons that came out, I've known it before, but I often forget it, is that we need to really, one needs to really think through all their audiences and how whatever statement or comment is going to be made reaches and will sound to the ears of the various audiences. So thanks for this opportunity, and I look forward to the questions. Thank you. Um, I'll take off from where you left, and when you said audiences, um, I'm, I'm an ethnic Tamil. I'm from Tamil Nadu, and I'm from Chennai, and I was a student during those days. And one of the first things that came, the things that were f often raised at the university campuses when we found the Norwegian intervention was um, the capacity to understand. And I, I should also add, I have a sister-in-law who is a Tamil refugee from Sri Lanka. So within our own household, we found numerous differences. We could not understand each other, and we, we were often yelling at each other. And we didn't have consensus within our own household. And then when the question of Norway's intervention or a Western intervention came in, the first question that's often raised is the capacity. Do you think they understand us better than we do? Or maybe an external perception is much better than internal perception because we can't resolve our own differences? But do you think they understand the culture, the sensitivities, uh, what a Tamil feels versus what a Tamil doesn't feel? And you know, this debate is also highly politicized within the Tamil parties in Tamil Nadu. And that can be used at the federal level for the intervention in Sri Lanka, which you often see is the case. I just, I'm wondering if you would have any reactions to it. And any one of you can, yeah. I think it's a very, re very relevant uh, question. I think with the benefit of hindsight, we should have had a bigger team on the Norwegian side who could have tapped more into, I mean, of course, there is no real knowledge about Sri Lanka in Norwegian society. We should have tapped more into, particularly maybe Indian and other environments with, with, with more insight. So that's a very fair criticism. However, we had a few benefits which people tend not to understand. The, the most important of them was the unique insight into the leadership of the Tamil Tigers. Because it, this is, at the end, yes, it was about Tamil uh, uh, feelings, 
but at the end of the day, it was about the leadership of the Tamil Tigers. Nearly all Tamils those days followed the Tigers because there was, there was no third way. Either you were with the government of Sri Lanka in some of the paramilitary <coughs> groups or the parties supporting that, or you were with the Tigers. There was no room, no space for any third, a third opinion. So the Tigers totally dominated the Tamil scene, even if some people were not happy with that. And we have, a, I have to say, a unique insight into the thinking of the Tamil Tigers because of our close relationship to Anton Balasingam. And he was unique, and I explain in one sentence why. If someone had been killed by the Tamil Tigers, Balasingam would tell me why. He would say, yes, we did it, or Prabhakaran did it, and that's the reason. If you asked Mr. Tamil Shervan or some of the other leaders of the LTT, they would say, no, 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 it was not us. It was for sure the government who did it to put the blame on us. Don't trust all, all you hear. And of course, in, on the government side, you had some of the same. And they, if someone had been killed by the government, uh, they would blame the Tigers and say they did it. I developed the elephant theory, which is very simple. If you see an elephant, believe it's an elephant. It's not a giraffe or a zebra or something else which people will, will tell you. If it <laughs> looks like someone was killed by the tigers, they're normally there. And if they looked like they were killed by government or paramilitaries under the government, they're normally there. But we had, frankly, a much better insight into the inner working and the thinking of Prabhakar the top leaders of the LTT and the average Tamil would have, even with all the culture knowledge. I was just going to say, there's only one danger that I can see. Yes, I completely agree. Much more insight into the Tigers and into Prabhakaran and the thinking, etc. But there's a danger. Norway was the one running this show. And if others are meeting with Prabhakaran and others and are not completely on the same wavelength and page with Norway, then things can, I think, run afoul. So my own view is, I, I don't take away from what you say, but you did, under Norway, the Kingdom of Norway, understood uh, the Tigers uh, much better than anyone else. And I think most of us were guided in large extent by what you'd tell us and what you'd say. But there's a danger in opening up too much in a situation like this to the international community because you don't control the conversation anymore. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the point I was going to make was a sort of slightly broad one about facilitation. Because it was prompted by your, your question. And, and I suppose the question is this, you know, is, uh, is it a requirement of this kind of third party facilitation role in peace processes? Is it actually a sine qua non of that, that you know loads about the context? Or is in fact facilitation a professional skill, just like many others? And, you know, you, you don't even have to no. know anything, you just have to know how to facilitate. My feeling is that the evidence, at least from Sri Lanka, suggests that at the very minimum, you need to be in touch with well-informed <laughs> sources. Um, I mean, the point I made earlier and Eric amplified about this, this understanding of the importance of bipartisan political uh, you know, consensus or building it to peace, you know, that was critical. And, and I'm sure there were people out there who could have, perhaps should have more loudly said that to the Norwegians. So I don't know, I, I, but I think it is an interesting and perhaps important point. Because if we look around the world at, at facilitators, you know, often they don't know that much about the context, frankly, that they're going into. But then I just think you have to hope, well, if they don't, then for goodness sake, make sure that there are people behind them who do know about it and that they're making decisions that are informed. I just want to lead off from there, you know. I sometimes do you agree with the fact that a facilitator can be only as effective as the parties in the mediation want them to be? 
And in your, in your particular experience, do you think you were, both, your, um, both the parties were sincere to you throughout the negotiations? Yes, I, I believe both parties were sincere. And I, I know that some people don't believe that, but I, I believe they were both parties were sincere. Uh, I believe that uh, the uh, conflict could have ended by a negotiated peace. And I will give a couple of arguments for this. I mean, the Tamil targets, contrary to believe, uh, the main belief in Colombo, embarked upon the peace process at the peak of its power. It was never as strong as in 2000, 2001, when they started the peace process. And they were the driving force getting it started at the time, not the government of Sri Lanka. That was after Delta. It had been very, very close to overrunning the entire Japna Peninsula. We were working with the Indian government uh, to rescue the, uh, the Sri Lankan soldiers there, to take them to India in the case that they were uh, completely destroyed by the Tigers. And it was just after the attack on the Bandranaike airport where uh, aircraft for billions of dollars were destroyed and the Sri Lankan economy for the one and, this is the one and only year in Sri Lankan history where there's been a negative economic growth completely skydived. So that was the time when the, when the targets went for peace. So obviously they, they were sincere. But they may have been sincere in the sense that they were not absolutely clear as to what would be the outcome. I think Balasingam also used this in the sense that he, he was definitely ready to settle for a federal settlement. Clearly so. I mean, it was, I, would, I would accept uh, a settlement within a united Sri Lanka. Uh, and he used this to try to convince Prabhakaran on that. But Prabhakaran was, not, was never, really, uh, never at the end absolutely able to accept federalism. So yes, sincerity, but kind of not with a full, clear vision of where it would have ended. On the government side, I think there is no doubt that the two main uh, figures, Shandiga Komratunga and Rande Vikramasinghe, both were dedicated to peace, both were ready to settle for wide-ranging autonomy for the Tamils in northern Sri Lanka, but had difficulties finding a way to doing it. Did you, do you have any reactions? I had no doubt about the sincerity, certainly, of the government and were guided, was guided by uh, comments from our Norwegian interlocutors. Uh, and it did seem, at least to the United States, in the 2003 time period, that this was a real possibility, or there was a real prospect. Uh, I'd almost say that we were bullish on this prospect, uh, but uh, alas, as they say. Just a brief thing. About, about this, this business, you, the thing you mentioned earlier, like are facilitators as good as the parties? I think, I mean, I don't get too theoretical, I mean, but at least in Sri Lanka's case, I think the answer is definitely yes. And the reason is because the mandate, you know, the cards that the Norwegians were dealt in terms of facilitators was explicitly very, very, um, I think even Lakshman Kadrigama, the foreign minister, used this term to Eric, said, we want a lightweight facilitator. You know, in other words, not somebody who could bend arms, not somebody who could push them about, somebody who would do the job of passing messages backwards and forwards. Yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. You know, um, that's a tough mandate to then go out and start trying to push people about, not least because you'll probably get kicked out if you do. Um, final question before I turn to the audiences. The policy of talking to terrorists. I think you came under severe international criticism, if that, to put it mildly. Um, I think you met Prabhakaran at least 10 times. Mm -hmm. 
and your argument was we should have met him more. Mm -hmm. uh, you somehow touched this in your remarks, <coughs> saying um, leaders at the highest level sometimes do not know the real ground picture. They are being fed mm -hmm. all kinds of stories. So do you have, how did you react to those situ criticisms in real time? But we were not criticized by those who really mattered. Uh, true. <laughs> True, I mean, there were a lot of criticism in media. You could find any number of university professors <laughs> criticizing, very clearly so. But who mattered? Uh, we were asked continuously by the government of Sri Lanka to keep up this, to go and speak to Prabhakaram. Uh, also, Mahinda Rajapaksa, I mean, it was not just Chandrika and Rani Vikramasinghe. Mahinda Rajapaksa repeatedly asked me to go there. He was very eager uh, for that. So we were, there was no doubt on the government of Sri Lanka side that we should speak to terrorists. Nor was there any issue with India or the United States or any of the main pl players. The Indians did not want to engage with the Tigers directly, nor with the United States. But at no point were we criticized by the government of India or the government of the United States. To the contrary, whenever I had spoken to Prabhakaran, the first I would do would go to, be to go to India to meet the two power centers there, the National Security Advisor and the Foreign Minister, to report about everything Prabhakaran had said. So we were not criticized by those who mattered, but by those who didn't matter. Great. Thank you. I'm Tacey Schaefer, uh, now at Brookings and McLarty Associates, but uh, once upon a time U.S. Ambassador in Sri Lanka. The time when I was in Sri Lanka is a little bit before the time that you were most active, uh, and that gives me a perspective uh, that's perhaps a little bit different. Um, I will resist the temptation to go gas on and on, but I do have a lot of questions. Um, first, I think it's important to look at some of the efforts that did fail. India mounted a huge and intrusive diplomatic effort long before it sent in the India peacekeeping force in 1987. Uh, the Timpu talks did not succeed. India had a very clear idea of how it wanted things to wind up. They didn't wind up that way, and you're absolutely right that the Indians felt burned. We sat next to their former high commissioner on a plane 10 years after all of this, and he shook his head on hearing that I was in Sri Lanka and said, I can't go back there. Um, Chandrika Kumaratunga's efforts deserved to get further than they did, but they didn't, and the interesting question is why. And I think there are a lot of answers to it, uh, one of them is that at that time, while the LTTE may have been serious about trying it out, I don't think that there was a gut level feeling that we've got to make this succeed. So it's the difference between being sort of serious and being determined. And what they were determined about was not peace. Um, I think that there are lessons in there. There are lessons for Sri Lanka. There are lessons, not necessarily identical ones, for other peacemaking efforts. Um, another tantalizing question is, what is the importance, or not, of having a mediator, facilitator, whatever name you wish to use, 
who disposes of independent power. And arguably, Eric, you were from the opposite model, that you were there for your brains, and partly because you didn't represent a huge power, partly because you weren't Rich Armitage. Uh, that's the way they wanted to play it. You can make an argument either way. I have no patience with the theoretical argument, but in a particular case, it's an interesting one to think about. Which brings me to my final question, at least for now. You've talked a lot about lessons that you learned that you think would be applicable more generally. What did you see that made the Sri Lanka conflict unique, or did you? Are there things that surprised you about the Sri Lanka conflict and the way the uh, different parties related to you, the way, for example, that the Tigers so strenuously defended their right to be treated exactly equally to the Sri Lankan government. Um, what, I think you do need to know this particular conflict and not conflicts in general, but what about this particular conflict was important? Who wants to go first? I was talking about someone else just started. What was unique or surprised me, I think, was or what I never could get my head around fully is I never fully came to the conclusion that uh, the LTTE wanted what you said, just full equality with the Sinhalese. I always feared and thought they wanted an independent state. And though I didn't see so much rhetoric latterly on that, I kind of had in the back of my mind the fear that they always that's what they really wanted. And that was not going to happen. Even someone as limited knowledge as I had of, of, of Sri Lanka realized it wasn't going to happen. And as long as Prabhakaran kept that in mind, then uh, we weren't going to. Nothing was ever going to be good enough. It wouldn't be good enough unless it was full, equal statehood, nationhood with Sri Lanka. That's the thing that bothered me the most. The uniqueness. The situation, I defer to those who have more experience. But all conflicts, some of which I've been personally involved with, are violent. That's the same. All of them have destruction and death to civilians. That's the same in Sri Lanka. Uh, all of them uh, are very difficult to extricate yourself. It's very hard to say, uh, after a certain number of people died on either side, it's very hard to say, well, let's settle short of our ultimate ambitions. Those things are all the same, and they're all the same in all conflicts, I think. So. One, one particular problem in the Sri Lankan peace process was the different perspective as to how it could happen. The Tamil Tigers wanted a protracted, long, dragged out peace process uh, where they said we will build confidence. But I think also one aspect of that was that, that, that Balasingam thought he should use this to fully convince Prabhakram to uh, embrace federalism. Because Balasingam would have known very well that the outcome of a negotiated peace could never be a separate state. Theoretically, the LTT could win a separate state through military means, but not through negotiations. He knew it, and for sure also Prabhakram uh, knew that. But uh, I think Balasingam wanted this also as a way of bringing uh, Prabhakram on board. I think uh, uniqueness is also that the vast majority of Tamils 
also the majority of Sinhalese would have accepted a federal settlement if, it, uh, if that had happened. Uh, if Prabhakaran had led and told Tamils, we'll go for that, uh, there would have been a, a huge majority who would be happy with, with that. I may, we may not use the word federal, I mean, that's not the issue, but wide-ranging autonomy for Tamils in north, uh, northeastern Sri Lanka within one nation would have been acceptable to the vast majority of Tamils and also to the, to the, to the, to the Sinhalese. So the, it was to get there, which was difficult. And then this protracted process was very difficult for any Sinhalese leader because then all those forces who could undermine the, the other party, extremist Buddhist monks, whoever it was, was uh, undermining it. And which is not very well known, even Mahinda Rajapaksa was very clearly ready for a big bang. I mean, he told me he was ready to go and meet Prabhakaram. They should have a, make a backroom deal. They should resolve the problem between the two of them. And there would be a, a, a autonomy in the Northeast. What Mahinda Rajapaksa did not want, what exactly what the LTT did want, which was a long, protracted uh, peace process with all the difficulties which would, would have undermined Mahinda's political position in the South. So the complete separate perspectives on how the process should happen was also added, uh, added dif difficulty, which may have been somewhat particular for Sri Lanka. I mean, really, I'll only add one thing, because there were many questions and interesting mm. points there, which was your point about earlier processes, which, by the way, for those of you who do get to the book, I mean, they're in there, not perhaps in the same detail. I do take it from the beginning of the conflict, uh, and partly thanks to interviews with you. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, about the pro it's about Chandrika's efforts in the mid-90s. Um, there was a, you know, she came to power in 94, and very soon a, a peace process of sorts started. There was a ceasefire agreement, cessation of hostilities, four rounds of talks, etc., which then broke down six months later in, in April 95 when the ceasefire was overthrown. But the lesson from that, I think, well, I'll suggest a lesson is this twofold. One is the way she, process, I mean, if, you know, Ranil Wickremesinghe can, um, can be criticised in 2002 for failure to build a bipartisan consensus. Well, my goodness, Chandigarh in 94 had not the slightest interest or intention of doing it with anybody else but herself and those around her. You know, there was not even a suggestion of a consensual initiative. Now, that's partly her style of politics. Um, but that was a fatal weakness, I think. But on the more positive side, one thing she did do after that, once, the, when they, once they went back to war, was there was this White Lotus movement, um, which was a, basically a popular uh, edu peace education effort. And her argument was, look, we have to, if we're going to get peace in this country, we've got to build up popular understanding um, and support for peace. And so, in fact, Mangala Samwariri, the now foreign minister, was a leading figure in this movement. And again, I mention that because it, by the contrast of what happened after 2002, you know, the, the, in my view, complete failure of Randall's government to actually engage with public uh, opinion and real education, like to go out to people and explain the benefits of peace. You know, hey, folks, you know what? Your vegetables are cheaper in the market, and you know why? It's because of peace, because now we can, the markets in Jaffna are open to us and we can trade. And the Norwegians, I think, would, if they'd been allowed or encouraged, would have perhaps assisted with that public education on peace, on the value of the peace process. But again, Reynolds' government seems, at least from what they tell me, made it pretty clear that that's not what they, they wanted the Norwegians to do. So the result was a sort of screaming absence. Um, so in that, and on that count, I think Chandrika's efforts do, do come out better, actually.
think there's a question there. Hi, Gowri Konesrin. Uh, I'm an attorney with USTPAC. Also, I think some of you may have known one of my former bosses. Uh, in 1999, I worked for MP Nealon through Chelvum in Colombo. I was there the summer he was assassinated. Uh, my question today is about uh, the extent to which we're focusing on the involvement of the international community, um, and I know Norway specifically in the negotiations. Someone like me, I find this all very interesting. The negotiation time, the peace process time is not an aspect of Sri Lankan political history. I'm as well aware of as I am some of the more recent developments. But I think given now that we're in January 2016, in September, Sri Lanka co-sponsored a resolution at the UNHRC. The first oral report is scheduled for this June. We're still waiting to see you know, uh, the government essentially satisfy a lot of the uh, commitments it made in Geneva in September. Uh, I'm wondering, can you all speak a bit to the involvement of the international community now, specifically with regards to the development of an accountability mechanism? Oh, sure, please. Yeah. Uh, let me first say that uh, you mentioned Nilam Tirushavan. That, that, that's one of the reasons we should be so sad for this war. So many brilliant Sri Lankan, he being one of them, killed for with no purpose. I mean, he was a fantastic individual, really a decent man, brilliant intellectual. He should be still alive to guide uh, developments in, in, in Sri Lanka, and he, he was bumped off by the by the Tigers. Uh, on the on the on the future, uh, I believe that there are some urgent and some more long-lasting issues. The urgent issues is for many people to get knowledge. Uh, you are a widow or you are a Tamil woman, uh, your husband, uh, we know, or there are witnesses uh, telling that your husband handed himself over to the armed forces uh, seven or eight years back. Uh, in, in all likelihood, that person is not dead. I mean, there is, the chances of love is very limited. But for you to remarry, to get back to life, it may be better to get proper knowledge rather than to still have the slimmest of, of hopes that your husband is alive. So people need the closure of this to, to go forward. And they need to be, uh, though, I mean, there are still a number of hundreds of political prisoners, people who are in prison. Uh, seven years after the war, that's too long. They should not be brought to court or they should be re released. I mean, if they have done acts which deserve a long prison sentence, bring them to court and prove it. Otherwise, you, you, you release them. So these, these are some of the urgent issues. Then, because there are long-term issues about accountability, the more that can be resolved by Sri Lanka itself, the better. But of course, there is very limited trust in the Tamil community to Sri Lanka's ability to do this without international assistance, for the simple reason that there have been so many commissions in the past which delivered nothing. So that's why I think still some international component to accompany and a Sri Lankan-driven process here would be beneficial, um, but we cannot expect that to happen from one year to the other. That will be, take some time. Yeah, sure. Now, one of the difficulties, it occurs to me, in Sri Lanka is that you're an attorney, but everyone is an attorney, in a way. Every, everything has to be discussed and dissected and argued, as you said, black or white, or, you know, you say yes, I say no, all of those things. This situation, what the international community do, should do now, in my view, is the following. First of all, they are trying to provide 
the uh, judicial expertise, et cetera, as I understand it. We were, my colleague and I were in Colombo uh, not so long ago and spoke to the government, spoke to uh, Raniel, spoke to President Sarasandoval, and they explained to us, I'm not saying it's done, but they explained to us that they were going to reach out and get international judicial help, but it is still should be seen as a Sri Lankan solution. Uh, second, they, there wasn't very much an understanding that accountability is important and should be pursued. And we all know what the difficulties are in coming up with that accountability. But the question I'd have is the following. And we asked this question of Tamils and Sinhala in Sri Lanka during our trip several months ago. Uh, what is the most important thing? The most important thing is for Tamil citizens to be seen as equal before the law, be able to live without fear, uh, to have equal rights with every other citizen in Sri Lanka, have no fear of Buddhist chauvinism, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and it it would be my humble opinion that this was the most important thing, and that's what the international community should be spending their time on, trying to bring that about and helping the government, who I think in their uh, their intentions in this issue are good. And whether they will fulfill those good intentions, I can't say. I hope so. But that's where I think the international community should spend the majority of their time. And there's obviously uh, uh, some uh, area of assistance for the government, whether it's budget support or something. And it's not a huge amount, not as much as we raised in Tokyo uh, in 2003. But that's also something the international community should be doing. Yeah, I'll just add one thing. I mean, I don't know if it's the only thing the international community will be doing, but I think a priority issue for the future um, pertains to the security sector. I mean, and again, this is one of these ones where it's sort of glass half full, glass half empty. And I've, I flip on that one all the time. But having just seen last week a new report detailing torture in the Northeast in 2015, in other words, since the current government came into power, um, just, it, you know, it's as brutal and horrible as it ever was. Uh, and it's civilians and it's just, you know, the impunity of the whole thing, the clear sense of a, of a, of a military or security sector that just behaves knowing that no, it doesn't answer to anybody. It doesn't have to worry about, people don't um, hide their faces, you know. They, they just do the torture and that's how it goes. I think security sector reform is, and it's a really tough one. I mean, it's not just really like a look around the world. It's, it's often the toughest bit of the post-conflict settlement because it really is about the leadership of the military who've enjoyed de facto autonomy, if not to say impunity, during the conflict and are not particularly interested in sacrificing that, frankly, there after the conflict. But until that changes, I think, it's about mood music, partly. The atmosphere in the Northeast, the sense of military occupation, of fear will remain. And as long as that remains, it just makes the whole business of a political settlement that much more difficult. It's hard to negotiate. It's hard to think rationally. It's hard to kind of think long term when you've got so many existential needs, as Anton Bangasim used to say. You know, you're po the poverty, the, the violence, the, all, all the things that comes with the, the aftermath of the war. So I don't know if it's mainly about money, Richard, but I think it, it is about maybe pressure, and it's maybe even about providing expertise and assistance. That has to be addressed, I think, as part of the package. I have a question there. Yep, yep, there. Thank you, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us this um, 
this afternoon. My name is Tasha Manarangan. I'm the director of Pearl, People for Equality and Relief in Lanka, a human rights organization here in DC. Good oh, um, my question goes to looking specifically at 2008 and 2009, um, when you really see the height of mass atrocities being committed against the Tamils in the Northeast, and particularly in September of 2008, when the Sri Lankan government ordered international aid agencies and others to, to leave the Vanni. And if we're speaking about foreign interventions in Sri Lanka, I think we really need to speak about that time and the um, reasons for the international community in withdrawing from Sri Lanka during that pivotal moment um, when you know, all observers knew that this was going to be a bloodbath. Um, so I was wondering if this relates to Mr. Armitage's comment earlier about um, knowing very clearly who the good guys and who the bad guys were um, in the sense that the bad guys were the LTTE and was it the international community's understanding that um, the atrocities and the deaths of tens of thousands of Tamil civilians was a trade-off they were willing to make in order to exterminate the LTTE? I, I was not, of course, in government, but uh, at the time, I want to make a comment. When we were in government, and we were traveling to Jaffna and other places. We were told, and everyone was saying it in the government, but we were told by General Fonseca, this war is not winnable. Quote, unquote, not but or however, it's not winnable. And that was the mindset at the time. And things drifted on, and there was some very severe terrorist attack. Ironically, I've been told by the US government at times when the US government was uh, changing their view on talking to Mr. Balasingham, and I myself had been approached by our government to make myself available to Balasingham as sort of a halfway mark to talking to someone in the government. And we were in the process of arranging for a visa for Mr. Balasingham, and uh, there was a terrible uh, attack on the Army base, as I recall, uh, and we stopped that. Uh, so I think many in the international community, at least in the United States after that, threw their hands up, took their eye off the ball. Were they aware of the deaths of tens of thousands of, of Tamil citizens? Yes, I don't know how many, I don't think anyone, that's one of the difficulties, nobody knows how many. Uh, how important was it to us? I think there was such a sense that it's finally over, first of all, that maybe it's time now that we can resolve these issues and all that. I think that was, at least in the United States, was a, a higher priority at the time. But I turn to people who had responsibilities. <laughs> I mean, as you said, that's exactly right. Until very late in the war, no one thought either side could win. I mean, they, I mean, we had, of course, from the Norwegian side, no real intelligence. We based upon what we got from the United States, but mainly what we got from India, being the, the power with the best, best intelligence. Until 2008, the Indians all through said, neither side can win. They can continue for long, but neither side can win. The first time was about August 2008, when Mr. Narayanan, the then National Security Advisor, told me, maybe the government can win. The first time I heard anyone saying that at high level uh, in India. And around uh, the turn of the year from 2008 to 2009, to me it was absolutely clear that the government would win. There was no way uh, there could be any other outcome. We even put that into a so-called culture statement 
calling upon an calling for an organized M to the war. And let me just spend a few seconds on this. We tried to we we knew the government were hell bent on winning, that we go to any uh, extreme to win, and that they wanted a military victory. We also knew. Uh, that the LTT would not be able to stand up. They had been pushed and pushed and pushed and into a smaller and smaller perimeter. There was no way uh, uh, they could win besides a miracle and, uh, from, from God. So we tried to we sent a message to, to the LTT through different, uh, uh, different channels. Let's go from organized M to this war. All the names of all your cadres will be taken. There will be uh, photos taken of all of them. There will be an amnesty. They will hand themselves over to the International Red Cross or to the UN uh, or to India or the United States. Some I Americans were ready to provide ships for, for this, uh, this to happen. Uh, it's basically up to you to decide how we, will, how we will do this. We knew the government didn't want this, but we also knew that the one day the LTT accepted an organized way to the war was no way Mahindarachya Paksa could object, because then the Indians and the Americans and others would tell you, I mean, hey, look, we can stop this war, you can win without more bloodshed, you, you must do it. So Prabhakaran, uh, unfortunately, rejected this throughout, and at the end, uh, the entire LTT leadership was killed. So because he has a heavy responsibility for this bloody end to the war, but this cannot excuse the obvious war crimes committed by the Sri Lankan uh, state at the time. Heavily bombing, very, very, very densely populated areas with a huge Tamil civilian population. It's not in accordance with any international uh, agreed uh, way of, of handling wars because the so-called collateral damage was much bigger than you could, could accept. And the fact that Key LTT leaders, I mean, Mr. Pulideva, Mr. Nadesan, they called us on the 17th of May asking to, sur to surrender. We, we and others informed the government uh, that they would surrender the day after they were killed. And of course, I mean, the, not the slightest doubt that they were killed uh, deliberately by the government of Sri Lanka. And look to some of the most absolutely outrageous, I mean, I've spoken about LTT leaders' uh, killings, but look to the fact that the 12 year old son of Prabhakaran was taken into custody by the armed forces of Sri Lanka, given sweets, and then executed. Mm. How can that be acceptable in any, I mean, how can you make a 12-year-old boy responsible for the sins of his father? Completely unacceptable and obvious war crime. Yeah, I'll, I'll, again, just one thing I'll add, which is to, the question is, sorry, I didn't catch your name, but to go back to the actual starting point of your question regarding events in autumn 2008, when the UN and other international organizations pulled out of the northeast of the country, out of the Vani, because the government declared that they could no longer guarantee their safety. Now, I, I, I actually think I probably agree with you. I don't, for anybody who's seen uh, any of Colin McRae's documentaries, and in particular, No Fire Zone, there's one moment, exactly that moment, where one of the UN uh, workers talks about, re remembers the withdrawal from the Vani and describes the feeling as they pulled out of seeing the faces of Tamil civilians. He said, who I realized, realized that we were leaving them to their death. That's how he describes it. And you know, it's, it's, on, it's on a par with Dutch peacekeepers pulling out of Srebrenica, of the blue helmets in Kigali in Rwanda, I mean, in terms of the, the feeling around it. And I think 
all I, I mean, it's a complicated subject, but I think the UN pullout there was, was moral failure of the highest order, albeit moral failing of a very understandable nature, because what the Sri Lankan government did was they bullied the UN. They pushed them around. And as it so happened, the UN leadership gave in. Um, and that, I think, it should be in terms of lessons learned within the UN. You know, that they have reflected subsequently. Charles Petrie produced a report. And, and the question of leadership in those very, very difficult situations for the UN, where they're pulled between the moral responsibility to look after civilians as against keeping access, meaning keeping in with the government, these kind of trade-offs. It's very, very difficult stuff. And it's not for me or anybody else think, to stand up and say it's a simple question. It's not. But I think it was a very, very key moment because it was also the moment that ensured that for the rest of the conflict, effectively happened out of sight and out of mind. There were no international journalists. There was virtually no international presence. And that's one of the enabling conditions for what happened. Ban Ki-moon has also apologized on behalf of the UN for the UN fa failure there. So though that can, of course, not replace uh, or uh, make good for what happened, but at least that, that's a very strong statement from, from Baum. I have a question here, and then you. Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Amtad, my question is to you uh, about uh, uh, Obama, President Obama's legacy of minimizing uh, American intervention in South Asia. How would it hurt broader interest of South Asia the, the, about the legacy that President Obama has established of minimizing US intervention in that part of the world? And my question is in the context that I talked with Indian friend about Sri Lanka, and they told me, oh, it's all drama is created by ISI. Of course, you know, those Indian friends, even somebody catch a cold in India, they blame ISI. I don't think if ISI has to do anything with this Sri Lankan problem, I think that they are an ethnic problem, and Pakistan has nothing to do with it. Uh, but my I, question I is... Think, I think I'll, you know, I'll summarize the question. I think, how does Obama defend his legacy of minimizing intervention in South Asia? Especially if in I terms can... of between India and Pakistan in the but context I, of Kashmir. Thanks. But I think... Um, Look, I'm an out-of-work out Republican, yeah. right? <laughs> it's not my job to defend our president. It is our president's job to make careful calculations of when he's going to put men and women of the United States into combat and into combat situations. I hate the term boots on the ground because they're not inanimate objects. They're people. So. Uh, his minimalist intervention, I wouldn't say that 10,000 troops plus in Afghanistan is minimalist adventure. I wouldn't say that anyone in Pakistan wants any involvement by the United States. Kashmir, you point out, this is a problem that can only end badly if someone gets into the middle. Even Norway, who's been valiant in peacekeeping <laughs> efforts, is not going to step into that one. There's no good can come of it. We had the, we, and I'll tell you why. In 2002, 2003, we had the Twin Peaks incident, and Pakistan and India really, really nearly came to nuclear war. And if you look in the parliaments of Pakistan or India, the freedom and the alacrity with which politicians speak about the use of, possession of, and use of nuclear weapons against each other, it'll scare the hell out of you. So. I'm not going to defend our president, but I'll tell you, most Americans appreciate that he's been very judicious 
you know, the further expenditure of U.S. lives. So. Hi, Dave Ramaswamy. My question is regarding the uh, role of non-state actors in conflicts such as in Sri Lanka and other parts of Africa, like what we can learn, and specifically the role of evangelical groups. So the LTT leadership was mostly you know, Christian, even though the Tamils in Sri Lanka were Hindu. And even if you look at uh, you know, places like Nigeria, northern versus southern, South Sudan and North Sudan, you, you have almost 21st century mini crusades, uh, either germinating or in the works. So what is the role of you know, countries like the US, UK, Norway, state actors to rein in financing by non-state evangelical groups, like you're seeing now in Syria, the yeah. Qataris and Saudis funding the conflict. So how do states rein in non-state actors in, in financing of conflict and perpetuating it? I can say how the United States tries to do it. And this is a tricky issue because there are freedoms involved, there are rights of, of valid organizations to, uh, to proselytize, if you will, uh, their religion and their religious beliefs. Where we try to get onto this issue is if we feel people are proselytizing to terrorists or uh, things of that nature, we try to stop the financing, and that's out of our Treasury Department. But it's a very difficult and tricky one to ask our attorney in the back row about these issues because there are personal freedoms and institutional freedoms that have to be protected. But we try to do it by money, by choking it off. Adam? I think it's a very, very relevant general question for a number of other uh, areas of the world, but I don't think it's a relevant question for, for Sri Lanka. I'm, I'm not aware of any Protestant evangelical influence in Sri Lanka. The one religious dimension to the conflict, which I regret that we didn't handle well, was the relationship to the top Buddhist leaders. We were advised very strongly by Shantrika Komaratunga not to relate to the top Buddhist leaders, but I, I, if, I, if I could do everything uh, once again, I would have done absolutely the opposite. We should have gone often to Kandy to speak with the Maonaikas, that's the top Buddhist leadership. We should have related a lot more to them, even if we will not necessarily have agreed. We should have paid respect to them and try, uh, tried our very, very best uh, to, to, uh, to uh, 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 re relate to the top Buddhist uh, leaders of, of Sri Lanka because they were so important to the notion of Singhala nationalism, which can hardly be separated from, from Buddhism. Um, I guess I should say a few words, too. I was uh, the Assistant Secretary of State for the region in 2006-2009. I worked with Eric. I was the American side of the contact group. Um, and uh, I mean, first of all, it was an amazing institution that worked incredibly well together, I think. Um, with his leadership and Yasuchi uh, Akashi from the Japanese side. And it made him an interesting mediator because while Norway didn't bring too much to the table, I think everybody knew that if he asked for something from the United States or Japan, he was gonna get it. And so he did have the ability to bring in stuff that he needed. Um, and we were very active till the end. Um, and I guess that's the two aspects that I wanna say is pick up on the personality issue that, um, Everybody involved in this conflict seemed to make it very, very, very personal. Um, for the Indians, for the Congress Party government, for Sonia Gandhi, uh, the Tamil Tigers were the people who killed Rajiv, killed her son. Um, for the 
Sri Lankan military. These were the people that came in, and I think it was when they tried to blow up uh, General Fonseca that uh, it became a really personal uh, desire on their parts. Uh, Rajapaksa, uh, Mahindra uh, Rajapaksa, the president, um, it, it fed his sort of political ambition. Um, he kept getting more popular. Um, he kept doing better and better uh, with the Sinhalese voters. And he kept doing everything he could to destroy the center, to destroy the opposition party, uh, intimidate panel, Tamil uh, politicians, uh, the death squads that were going out and killing newspaper editors uh, all over the country in different places. Uh, and then on the other side, the, the tigers destroying the center as well. It was impossible to be a moderate Tamil. Um, they, had, uh, they did the mafia-style shakedowns of the Tamil diaspora. Uh, at the time, you couldn't even be a moderate Tamil outside of Sri Lanka. Uh, and they just together, between the government and the Tamil Tigers, they destroyed any center in, in those periods. Uh, we remained very, very active. Uh, in the final days when the mass of people were holed up uh, around the Tiger leadership uh, in the east, um, we were calling uh, the government. We were uh, calling the foreign minister every day. I think his job was basically to keep the foreigners out of the president's hair. Um, but our ambassador was going in to see the president, was going in to see uh, Gotabaya Rajapaksa at the defense ministry. Uh, we were showing them satellite photographs every day of where the shells had fallen the day before and telling them to cut it out and stop it. We were threatening them with uh, terminating aid programs, uh, everything short of putting ourselves in harm's way, I guess. so. You know, once, once the two sides had decided to fight it out one way or the other, I think there was very little that foreigners could do. Any closing words? Yeah. There is one. Oh. Yeah. Sure. Quick question. This uh, question is to uh, Mr. Sola. How confident are you now that you mentioned about the war crimes that this domestic uh, accountability mechanism will work to bring the perpetrators to justice? How confident are you? And this can extend to Mr. Armitage as well. I'll do one thing. I'll also take your question. It should be a half a second question. Then, <laughs> <laughs> In Sri Lankan, the, the problem, we have the two aspects. Was one is unresolved ethnic problem, the national question. Second one is the, the terrorism associated with the demand of uh, the separate state. Without addressing the both questions, it is not possible to have peace. Then uh, in order to address uh, unresolved ethnic problem, it is necessary to mobilize moderates of the both the sides of the uh, ethnic divide, Tamil and Sinhala, isolating extremists. Mm. You know, therefore, one of the problems that uh, the peace process uh, initiated during uh, early, from 2001 to that period was paid attention to the military aspects and bringing two parties to uh, the together without paying that much attention to resolve ethnic problem. Therefore, right now in this, the present situation, how can we mobilize do the, you know, moderates of all, both sides of the ethnic divides to promote national question? That is the way forward for the, the peace in Sri Lanka. Thank you. Closing words with the responses to the question. 
No, you are absolutely right. I mean, the fact that at the time there was very little room for moderates on both sides, I mean, particularly on the Tamil side, I mean, there was either, basically either you were with LTT or you were with Douglas Devananda or some of these uh, Tamil groups who were stooges of the, of, the, of the government of the armed forces of, of Sri Lanka. There was very little room for an independent position, like, say, Nilan Sherlan, which was mentioned there. Because at closing to the end of the war, there was also very little room for an independent position on the Singhala side. We should remember that the government uh, did not only kill Tamils, they killed the editor of one of the major Singhala newspapers. It would have been a parallel, basically, to the editor of Washington Post uh, being killed uh, in the city center of Washington uh, in, at broad daylight, uh, visible to everyone, and no investigation whatsoever we taken to look into the killing of Mr. Vikramatunga. Uh, so um, there were very, very limited room for, for moderates. Hopefully that can be opened up now. Uh, that's, uh, <coughs> and it is open. I mean, it's much, it's much, much broader uh, debate. I've now just come from Toronto, uh, which is, as you know, the biggest uh, Tamil diaspora city in the world. Uh, and I, I sense a clear change in the direction. I mean, there is a much more, much more openness for, for Tamil diaspora. Go back, invest, back a process. Still, you very rarely find anyone criticizing Prabhakaran. That is true, uh, at least not in public. But there is a new sense of direction towards being able to work with the, with the present, present government. So I'm optimistic that the room for moderates will, will prevail. And that because the, the solutions to the main problems in Sri Lanka are not that difficult. It's to get there which is difficult. There must be self-rule, some sort of autonomy or self-government or devolution, whatever name you want to use, to a Tamil entity, a Tamil-dominated entity in the northeast. And Tamils and Singhala must be first-class citizens, both of them in the same, same land. So I, I'm fairly optimistic that we will, we will come uh, there. On uh, the war crimes issues, uh, it will take time, but it will not go away. I mean, some people think this will go away. No. Uh, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Tamil Diaspora, uh, they will all make certain that these issues are kept on the table. And gradually, some of them will become up. Uh, we should, it should not take that long time, but think of the fact that here in the United States of America, last year, court proceedings was brought against those people who killed the Chilean folk songer Victor Hara at the stadium in Santiago in 1973. 42 years after, this is one of the most, most well-known criminal acts uh, of the Pinochet government, 42 years after, the people were brought to court. Maybe it will not take 42 years, hopefully not in, in Sri Lanka. It will take some time, uh, but at the end, those most responsible for war crimes will be brought to court in one way or the other. But the, in order to do that, uh, Tamils must also be realized that they can only be those most responsible. One day you'd claim that every sergeant, every lieutenant, every private who may or may not have done something wrong during the war should be brought to court. Uh, you will come nowhere. So target those principal decision makers who made uh, the war crimes possible. They should be brought to court. On the question of how confident, I think you asked, uh, I was, of, of this being resolved, I'm confident that the government has the intention, the right intention. I'm confident uh, in particularly the, the prime minister's views on this issue. Uh, but 
what I worry about. We have a, a humorist uh, writer in the United States, a famous one, Samuel Clements, also known as Mark Twain. And he had a famous comment that said, even though you're on the right track, you can get run over if you're not going fast enough. <laughs> and so I think the government's <laughs> on the right very track. Good. Very good, very good. The question is a matter of pace. Are they fast enough? And that will be, in my view, affected by how much true devolution there is, how much true equality before the law, et cetera, of all citizens of Sri Lanka. Uh, come. As that comes forward more and more, then I think the, the correct pressure to prosecute war crimes actually is reduced somewhat. But if that doesn't come forward and it's visible to the naked eye, that devolution, then I think that uh, the it, importance of war crimes, the prosecution's accountability will increase. Mark? Yeah, no, I, well, yeah, I mean, firstly, I will say, I think the way that uh, Richard Armitage just put it, I, I completely agree. And really, I, I don't think you should be an out of work Republican. I think you should be an in work. <laughs> Something on I don't Sri know Lanka. The way things are going, it's not looking so good. At <laughs> <laughs> least on Sri Lanka. Um, the rest is another question. But no, I, what I wanted to finish by just saying is uh, apropos the book, which I apologize, we only have a limited number of copies here for those who are interested in, in looking or perhaps buying it. Um, it is rather a large book. Um, but I was very pleased to hear that Richard Armitage has actually read it from cover to cover. So if he can do it, then anybody can. <laughs> um, but I think, I think that I would just finish by saying that, obviously, for those of you who know Sri Lanka well... Wait, wait a minute. <laughs> Let's, I want you to rethink that statement. If he can do it, anybody can do it? <laughs> Watch the no, monkey. I'm watch the monkey type. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll leave you to figure that one out anyway. But, <laughs> um, the, book, but the, the book is, is um, I think, obviously for Sri Lanka, those Sri Lanka watchers, Sri Lankans, that's a primary audience. But I do would suggest that it's also perhaps of interest for those who are interested in matters of peace and conflict and peace processes. Generally, and again, what uh, Richard said to me earlier about the, the lessons learned section of the book was very um, helpful, suggested it, that there's some real meat there. So please have a look at it, and if you do end up uh, like him reading it and you have thoughts about it, please get back to me. I'd be very pleased to hear from you. Thank you. Before I close, I want to invite you all for a wine and cheese reception just outside. And thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you.